digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. And I'm LD. Oh, no, wait. No, that's you. Okay, stop it. <laughs> and TJ2, the deuce. Very, that was a that good was one. That was a good one, yeah. What's mm. drinking? Okay, this is another one I haven't tried, so we get another authentic reaction this week. This is from Wiseacre Brewery. It's called Tiny Bomb American Pilsner. Is Wiseacre near, is it in South Carolina or? It looks like it is in Memphis, Tennessee, and yeah, Memphis. Memphis, oh, interesting. So not, not way, way far from here. Okay. Just, just a state or two over. Okay. Nice. Nice. Mm. Ooh, boy, this would be dangerous on a hot day. Holy Lord. <laughs> nice and crisp. Mm. <laughs> All right. So do we have any updates this week? Because, you know, I thought about it and I've, I've been pretty plugged in this week. And as I could gather, I don't think anyone passed away. Yeah, we've, we've had very few to mention here recently. Uh, now, I did have one little update from last week. Now, it probably got lost in the cacophony of us saying stuff like, you know, Rick James is in a subway saying, I got your $5 foot long, bitch, or whatever. Huh? But there was a very brief discussion of Neil Armstrong's underwear and moon rocks. Yes. Yes, there was. Okay. Yes. So I had to go back and look that up. What actually happened is NASA did inadvertently sell some moon dust and rocks that Neil Armstrong collected from the moon. They accidentally okay. sold it. Hey, I just, I don't understand how you accidentally sell your moon rocks. I have no idea why I thought it involved Neil Armstrong's underwear. Unless <laughs> unless the space dust was in his underwear or something. I don't know. And you don't know, man. How do you not realize that you sold Neil Armstrong's um, special moon rocks? <laughs> that seems like maybe a thing you would like mark. No Neil Armstrong underwear, but it was some moon rocks. But so. NASA did inadvertently sell moon dust and moon rocks at one point. Got it. Got it. Got it. I'm glad you looked that up. And uh, I, I think TJ too. I'm going to. Uh... Oh. I thought that that was the stout that I was going to use to make the soap. I still have like three more of them. Oh, okay. So there's plenty. Yeah. All right. So no, no, no. What now? What are you drinking? This is the Stockyard Oatmeal Stout from Trader Joe's. Oh, okay. Yeah, San Jose, California. Interested to see how that one, uh, how that one is. It's nice and smooth. Good. I will say this really quick, uh, just to our audience. I'm actually starting a new show. Uh, this Monday. So by the time this episode comes out, I'll have been working on it for two whole days. I am now working on the reboot of You Bet Your Life with host Jay Leno. So <gasps> if, if anybody is interested in auditioning for the show, all you got to do is email me at lindley at youbetyourlifecasting.com. And that's L-Y-N-L-Y at you bet your life casting.com and I'll get you all the info over there. We're going to be casting for a little bit, but uh, if you want your shot at uh, an awesome time to meet Jay and be a part of a really fun reboot, this is your chance. And uh, yeah, you just have to be 21 or over and it's U.S. residents only. So sorry to our three people in the U.K. that listen to us. We have some Canadian <laughs> listeners too, don't we? Yeah, I believe we do. And if you don't know Jay Leno, he was in collision course with the late Pat Morita. Okay. Okay. All right. Hey, cool. Hey, so we are wrapping up our um, series on Rick James. Bitch. 
this has been a three. Thank you. It's been a three part. Uh, this is a three part series. I do need to tell everybody up front. Now we've had a lot of fun with this the last two weeks because Rick James lived one of the wildest, craziest, funniest lives imaginable. So we've had a lot of fun with that. And there's some fun stuff and some wild stories of the fun variety this week, too. However, when we get toward the latter part of this episode, it gets really, really dark. Just going to be honest with you. So third act. Yeah. yeah, And so if you are offended by sexual situations, drugs, bad language, and um, depictions of fairly graphic violence, this is probably not the best episode for you to check, check us out next week. I think we'll be back to happiness and sunshine and unicorns. But um, if all the happiness, sunshine, and unicorns were dead, right? Yeah this 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 episode. While there are some really funny parts too, it gets dark at the end. There there's there's some really really disturbing things. So if that's not your uh, mug of beer, we totally understand. And join us next week. Yeah, I, it's uh, you just told me one thing at like by accident and. Uh, it takes a lot for me to be horrified. Whew, I was horrified. And, and now yeah. I know TJ too. You've done the research, so you know more than than we do. But from what I know, it's going to get ugly. It does vary. And and Elde, the thing you heard might not be the most disturbing thing that's in this episode. Yeah. Oh, cheese and crackers. But uh, but we start off on a light note, and why don't we do that right now? All right, good. let's do this. Rick so, James, bitch. So just to catch everybody up, in case uh. They've missed parts one and two. Here's a master plot version of what we've heard so far. You ready? Rick James had sex when he was nine, did heroin for the first time at 13, went AWOL from the Navy at 15, fled to Canada, was saved by uh, from a savage beating by two members of the band, hung out with Joni Mitchell, lived with Neil Young, was in a band with Young and Bruce Palmer, was signed to Motown, had the deal fall through when his AWOL status became known, broke out of a military brig, did five months in jail, crashed on Stephen Stills' couch in LA, was denied admittance to Disneyland with Jim Morrison because they were both tripping balls on acid, narrowly avoided being a casualty of the Manson family murders, had a three-way with a Swedish model and her mother finally attained musical success became a pimp inadvertently destroyed a drawing salvador dali did of him in a swimming pool helped start the career of prince hated prince threatened to whip prince's ass accused prince of stealing his stage act employed a man named pyro john defied law enforcement orders regarding smoking weed on stage had sex and did cocaine on restaurant tabletops with his band blocking the view of other customers, ran drugs from other countries while making his brother a mule, fled a party in the Hearst Mansion when NFL legend Jim Brown came looking for him, recorded his biggest selling album, partied at Studio 54, and freebased cocaine for the first time. Does that catch us up pretty good? I think, I think we're all, I think we're there. Oh um, I'd I, I just like to point out one thing, that the Dolly drawing was not done in the pool, it was destroyed in the pool. It was destroyed yes. in the pool. It was drawn at a dinner table at a party. Yeah, because Dolly was just looking at the guy, right? Uh, Salvador Dali was staring at him and said, Senor, I am mad about your appearance. Allow me to sketch you. And that, that is the last two weeks, folks. Good night, everyone. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's two weeks. Right. Good night, everyone. <laughs> they lived happily ever after. Oh, no, we yeah. still got part three. Yeah. Um, it was like he'd lived not just a thousand lives, but a thousand full and full-on crazy lives. He possessed a gigantic personality. He had always eschewed society's laws and standards and was an outsized character. But he was about to morph into an outsized caricature. 
an overdrugged, hypersexual, sometimes brutal and violent caricature. The line between Rick James and the self-destructive inner demon of sorts he called the me monster started to blur and eventually disappeared entirely. Now, we mentioned in our last episode that James had been the featured musical artist on Saturday Night Live and had met a young comedian there named Eddie Murphy. We also noted he got VIP treatment at the infamous Studio 54, and those two things intersected quite famously. <laughs> James had not only become friends with Eddie Murphy, he had also befriended Murphy's brother, Charlie. <laughs> he called him Darkness, and he also called Eddie Darkness. He called them the brother's darkness. He called them that, obviously, because they were more dark-complected than he was. Murphy said James would randomly lick women's faces in clubs or make pronouncements like, quote, come on, bitches, show me your titties or something. I'm Rick James. <laughs> Is that a direct quote? And uh, yes, that is a direct quote. And upon uh, young ladies pulling their shirts up and showing to them, Rick James, as would be immortalized in a comedy sketch many years later, would say, I wish I had more hands so I could give those titties four thumbs down. Real thing, that he, real thing that he actually said corroborated by multiple people. Now, was this part That's of a- who I can only call the gospel of Rick James, uh, Levi Ruffin? Um, Levi does feature into this episode, yes. Okay. But, uh, I don't know if he was around for that particular instance, but uh, that, that's, that's a real thing that actually happened, apparently. Now, per the retelling of Murphy, and per a very famous comedy sketch many years later, which others corroborated, and which we will get to eventually, he was in Studio 54 on one occasion, uh, Murphy was, when he heard a voice shout, Charlie Murphy! He says that James then sucker punched him and did so <laughs> while wearing a big gold ring that was formed out to spell unity on its face. So Unity was then imprinted backwards in Charlie Murphy's forehead. God. James then laughed, sang a brief rendition of Cold Blooded, and walked off. <laughs> Again, Mad Lib. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, James said later that Murphy was, quote, running with the big dogs at that point, and that sometimes he had to, quote, go upside his head. <laughs> Now, Murphy said James stepped over the line in that instance and was a, quote, habitual line stepper. His first impulse was to whip James's ass then and there, but he knew that wasn't the proper venue for a beatdown. Later at a hotel, though, he says that he kicked James in the chest and sent him flying into a dresser. When James screamed for security guards, Murphy allegedly said, quote, y'all take one more step, I'll kick this N-word's ass out the mother-effing window. And then started the greatest love story ever told. Pretty much. (laughs) He said James apologized, said he'd just been having too much fun, then offered to share some premium weed with Murphy and gave the following directive to a young lady that was standing in the room. Bitch, come have sex with Charlie Murphy. I'm Rick James. It just flows off the tongue. (laughs) I just can't. I can't. Now, do you... Uh, you know what? Just never mind. Just keep going. Just, I can't. There's a, it's, you want to say everything, but you can't say anything. There's another thing. I understand. I know the feeling. It's a, it just bottles up in your throat and nothing comes out or just the dumbest thing comes out. So right. I'm just not going to say anything. So just, just, you know what? No breaks. What, what I find unsettling about this whole ordeal is the fact that you, TJ, had to, had to squish this into one episode's worth of content. I wonder what what's on the cutting room floor right now. Oh, gosh. It, yeah. It's quite voluminous, I promise. <laughs> now, in another incident that would become famous later on, James, in full white cowboy stage attire, was behind a bar pouring drinks. <laughs> I, believe, I believe it's Studio 54. <laughs> he called Murphy over, 
and asked him if he'd heard the new joke going around. Charlie Murphy, what did the five fingers say to the face? Slap! And he slapped the absolute crap out of Charlie Murphy. <laughs> oh my God. This is amazing. He then, he then pronounced to the rest of the bar's patrons, quote, King Kong ain't got shit on me. Which was then adopted by Denzel Washington in training day. I am not kidding. <laughs> he waited a few minutes but Murphy approached James a short time later, who shouted, quote, That's right, bitch! Darkness! Brother Darkness! And slapped him with a downward <laughs> motion that made his face hit the bar. Oh, oh quote, my God. quote, Why'd you hit me like that? Rick James asked. Because you hit me, Murphy said. That was weeks ago, mother effer, James screamed. He legitimately did not remember having just slapped Charlie Murphy five minutes beforehand. Wow. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. A hell of a drug. Why? Because Coke, you know what? Hey, you know what? We'll actually come back to that later. <laughs> Are we now, just going to that for now? Yeah. So since we've talked about James's friendship, if you want to call it that, with Charlie and Eddie Murphy, <laughs> let's jump ahead just a little bit in terms of timeline. Now, of course, Eddie Murphy is best known as a comedian and an actor, but he has also been a recording artist in his life. Party all he, the time, party. He tried to work on some songs with Prince, but said he felt uncomfortable around him in the studio. James, seeing a chance to stick it to his old rival, brought Murphy into his home studio. Murphy would record a song written, arranged, and produced by James that would become the biggest hit of his career. Of course, he only had two, so it's... <laughs> Yeah. It's a pretty low bar, pretty low bar to clear, but we're going to hear that one now. So here is Eddie Murphy from 1985 doing a song written, produced, and arranged by Rick James called Party All the Time.
All right, and we're back. Oh, All right. That's that's a classic. Um, but the video, have you ever seen a person more clearly raging on a cocaine bender than Rick James and party all the time? I'm trying <laughs> Holy to Holy Lord. Good God. Maybe something Steven Tyler's done. Maybe. Maybe. But yeah, no, yeah, it's a and what a and what a sweet perm he's got in that. It is impressive. And what what exactly color did you call his hair in that? Because it's you know he'd, he'd had black like kind of braided hair mm-hmm. before this. It's it's brassy. It's it's like okay if you uh, if you know anything about like dyeing your hair when you bleach your hair after you bleach it it it's not going to be blonde. It's going to be brassy, and so you have to tone it to make it look blonde and it looks like he just skipped that step and went straight to gold so he has he has a golden perm yes he looks like a lion <laughs> wasn't wasn't that a movie that like peter fonda was in the golden on golden perm. Per- on golden <laughs> perm or something yeah no yeah. it's that john grisham book the perm right <laughs> right the perm <laughs> that's right valley. you're correct yep how would you like a fun fact fun fact fun fact party all the time reached number two on the billboard singles charts and stayed there for three weeks, but never got to number one. Okay, but why? Keep, keeping it out of the number one spot was Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me. Say yeah. You, say me. That, is, that, is, that is sex on a 45. I'm sorry. Pretty much. That is a PD or buddy. That's oh, a yeah. that's that's a panty dropper. Hold on. I mean, oh, I mean, Lionel knew Lionel knew how to get the women to take their britches off. Let's just be honest. Oh, he that's did. not dumb. <laughs> I can't. I, I I can't say anything about Lionel because I I work with him. So like. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. he knows, and you know. <laughs> he knows that you know. <laughs> that you know that he knows. Okay, so musically speaking, James followed up his huge hit album Street Songs with Throwing Down in 1982. The album featured contributions from The Temptations, Tina Marie, and Grace Slick. Oh, geez. Yeah. Now, it didn't sell nearly as well as its predecessor, but it was certified gold. Something else noteworthy happened in James's life in 1982. Now, James claimed in his autobiography to have slept with a lengthy list of well-known women. Among them, and I'm not going to read the whole list. You can Google it if you'd like to because it's it's readily available, but I'll just hit the highlights. Wait, wait, wait. Before you do this, do yeah. we need an allegedly or a... This is speculation on this, or this is what this is claimed in Rick James's autobiography. Okay, Fair enough. That's that's our caveat. Don't yep. sue us. <laughs> we didn't. Yes, write. I'm. I'm not a. Yeah, for, if any of you, were, I think the the odds of any of these people actually listening to our podcast is pretty slim. I'm not <laughs> saying you like. I'm not saying you laid naked with Rick. I'm saying he said you did. <laughs> yes, okay. there's a big difference. Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. Well, that was going to be my first guess. <laughs> I mean, off the game. Here we go. Ola Ray from Michael Jackson's Thriller video. What? Jan Gay, who was the estranged wife of his best friend, Marvin Gay. Oh, wow. He, he is, in fact, Rick James is Nona Gay's godfather, in, in case you didn't know that. Wait, Rick is? Iman, uh-huh. Oh. Iman. Oh. Grace, oh. Grace Jones, Elizabeth Ooh. Shue, and many, many others. Would you say Elizabeth Shue? Uh-huh. Like adventures in babysitting? Uh, That's yeah, like, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the one from uh, Back to the Future. Two, yeah. two, back to two the and future, three. Two and three. Wow. Cocktail. 
Cocktail. Yes. Cocktail. Okay, yeah. but the list is the list is lengthy, and you're welcome to look it up if you'd like to. What he had with the uh, star of the movie The Exorcist, Linda Blair, yep. was much more than just a hookup, however, as the two apparently had a two-year relationship from about 1982 to 1984. Well, there it is. It started when Blair said in an interview that she found James to be very sexy. Now, never one to miss an opportunity when it came to a lady, James <laughs> got her number and phoned her. In his book, James claims that Blair became pregnant early in their relationship, but had an abortion and didn't tell him about it until after the fact. He said, quote, I loved Linda and it hurt me that she would choose to abort our child without even wanting to talk to me about it first. I still look back on her choice with sadness and wonder about our baby and how having that child might have changed my life. Wow. In a retrospective interview well after James's death, Blair was actually a little bit coy about the relationship oddly. Now, you can find pictures of the two of them laying naked in bed on <laughs> on Google. They're not hard I mean, to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, they're, I, they're, I, they're, they're plentiful. I accidentally found it trying to find a picture for our Instagram last week, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, wait a second. It almost felt a, a little bit intrusive, so don't Google it unless you're okay with being a voyeur, because I felt, okay, I felt a little dirty, and I will tell you why. Because it was kind of like, and here's here's me going on with strings of words that my brother will never understand. You know how when you were watching Game of Thrones, the final season, yeah. and Arya slept with Gendry? It was like that. I watched that girl as a child. And then, and then I just Google pictures of Rick James, and all of a sudden, like, this child that I, I knew in, like, the 80s uh, is all of a sudden very grown up. But the difference is Maisie Williams wasn't possessed by a demon. The difference is Maisie Williams, I didn't have her in my childhood. This is true, yeah. But I, today, have, I could see that. I mean, I watched Linda Blair, and it keeps getting funnier every single time. All right, you, are, are you done? <laughs> Charlie Murphy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I know that. I know that my brother's Achilles' heel is any kind of pop culture <laughs> after right. the year 1987. So Game of Thrones is well beyond the, the scope of his knowledge. It, it was. So in an interview, I believe from 2011, so this is a good while after Rick James had passed away, Blair was a little bit coy about their relationship, saying, quote, I wouldn't say that we were as romantic as people probably wished that we were or thought that we were. Be that as it may, Linda, there are pictures of the two of you laying naked in bed. <laughs> yeah, say what you will. <laughs> that, that, I, that, that I've seen. Okay, so, and let's put it this way. Somebody had to take those pictures. Charlie Murphy. Right. <laughs> right. There, there, there was no such thing as there was no such thing as a selfie in 1983. There was not. It was, it was hard as kids. It was hard as hell to do a selfie with a Polaroid camera. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing was those pictures are in color, which means they had to take them to like the Revco or the CVS or the Sky City. So like the one hour photo guy is sitting there. No, it wasn't one hour. Oh. It was like two weeks. Yeah, way, it was, yeah, I was going to say, it took a couple of years to get pictures back on stuff like that. Yeah, it, it if it wasn't black and white, you knew it had to go off, and <laughs> it would take like two, three weeks for you to get back. And sometimes you get like the whole rollback, and none of them were good. Yeah. Like, like they were blurry. The lighting was like, screwed up, or yep. you double exposed them sometimes, or... Yep. Okay. There was all kind of there was all kind of taking taking pictures with real film was worthwhile when you got a good picture because digital really can't reproduce what a good actual film picture looks like to me a hundred percent yeah but oh it was it was fraught with peril yes so i mean to get those pictures 
Uh, they had to work for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I bet they worked for it. Welcome to the Giggling Hillbilly Podcast. Giggling Hillbilly Jamboree. We've re- I was going to say, if if ever there's been a series where we earned the moniker Giggling Hillbillies, like, I this, think we found it. This, this, yep, this one. Yep, this and one. They this weren't one. a troll. They were ahead of their time. Yeah. Right, exactly. So they were soothsayers, <laughs> truth tellers, as far as I'm concerned. Now, Linda Blair said that she and Rick drifted apart in 1984 as James's drug problems kicked into overdrive. Quote, I could not bear to be around that. It wasn't healthy for me, and it wasn't healthy for him, so I chose after a while to walk away. There was one lasting musical legacy that resulted out of that relationship, however. James wrote the song Cold-Blooded about Linda Blair because he said that she could make his blood run cold. He also, by the way, said that, uh, making a reference to The Exorcist, her head wasn't the only thing that she could swivel. <laughs> so, why don't we listen to that one now? Here's Rick James <laughs> with a song he wrote about Linda Blair. This is Cold-Blooded. Too much, you're too hot, you're too hot. Don't you know you're like? 
back um so like almost like a lot of the songs we've listened to the last uh, two weeks in particular you know that probably could have been two minutes shorter (laughs) it wasn't been any and it probably would have been a little better for it i still get that i hear p-funk every time yeah yeah Yeah, that's a heavy that's a heavy george clinton was no doubt a big influence on rick and and of course george also you know insinuated rick might have lifted some some uh, elements of parliament um, for his own use but um, which rick denied yeah. right but i just feel like one of you said it while we were listening to it like the dude kind of didn't know how to end a song sometimes it's like you know that was six that was that song was six minutes long and if it had been like three minutes and 45 seconds it would have been way better because <laughs> the last two minutes it's just <laughs> oh, cold-blooded <laughs> Uh, yeah, it almost went back to that 1970s funk sound. I was just thinking that. Yeah, a little bit, but a little more new wavy. There's a lot of, it's real synth heavy. So I hate to interrupt T, but we do have to take a short sponsor break and we will be right back. And we're back. All right, so we're going to get back into part three of the life and times of Rick James, bitch. Yep, there it is. Yeah. But that song was the title track to Rick's 1983 album, which, like Throwing Down before it was certified gold. That would be the last real hit record of his career, though, with his sales beginning to wane afterwards. In 1983? Yeah. Wow. Unfortunately, he would start to be known more for his antics and actions going forward. Now, he he was still popular enough in the mid-1980s, to be featured on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. (laughs) With Robin Leach. With Robin Leach. Up this week, it's Rick James, bitch. (laughs) I would have paid so much money to hear that. Did you think Robin Leach said that? This week on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It's Rick James, James, bitch. Both of you do a terrible Robin Lee. That is the worst. Robin. It's even worse. Yeah. Yes, I was gonna say you had an hysteria. It was even worse. <laughs> look, that was look, that was horrendous. This is this is rock and roll heaven, not impressions heaven. <laughs> right. For a reason. Now, in the feature Robin Leach did on him, James talked pretty frankly about having, and I'm making great big old air quotes, previously having had a drug problem. There, there is no indication of any kind that he didn't have one at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. He talked about how much he loved his mother, though, how she'd supported eight kids, basically by working in the numbers game, and how Buffalo, where he had basically a ranch with 
a, a, a bunch of horses was where he felt the most at home. He also earned himself a guest starring role in 1985 on The A-Team. Yes. Nice. If you can find him and no one else can help, maybe you can call Rick James, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, I love The A-Team. Well, I love The A-Team and I had the hots for AAA. Uh, Amy Amanda Allen. That's fair. So, yes. Rick James was on an episode of the A-Team. In the episode, James played himself. <laughs> he, he enlists Faceman, Murdoch, Hannibal, and B.A. to help a friend and fellow musician who was in jail, played by Isaac Hayes, by the way. Oh, wow. Who I have met. Who, who you've met. So there's another six degrees of separation. And there's another one coming up here in just a little bit. It's interesting that James was in a show, I think, about former soldiers on the run from military authorities, <laughs> since that kind of mirrored his life story. Yeah. Yep. It's also interesting that the episode featured him in prison, since that's a little bit of foreshadowing. But we'll oh. get there. We will get there later. In 1985, James released the album Glow. Now, after releasing seven very successful albums in a row, this one was a critical and commercial disappointment. It failed to even reach gold status, and the Rolling Stone album guide gave it just two out of five stars, saying it sounded like James had run out of ideas, and they called it, quote, a waste. It peaked at just number 50 on the Billboard album chart. His 1986 follow-up, The Flag, did even worse, barely cracking the top 100. Wow. People Magazine said James's, quote, strong, supple voice and superb arranging talents are wasted on the album, and Rolling Stone gave it a one-star review. Ooh, wow. That would actually be James's final album for the Motown Gordy imprint label, but he did sign with Reprise Records. His first release for that label would be wonderful. Now, do we all remember the two-word review the fictional band Spinal Tap received for their album, Shark Sandwich? I can't think of it. This goes up to 11. Shit Sandwich. That's... <laughs> well, wonderful, the album was titled Wonderful, could have gotten a one-word review, basically. Not. <laughs> oh, wow. All Music gave it a one-star review, and the album failed to crack the Billboard Top 100, topping out at number 142. There were no singles from the album to make the pop charts either, though it did have one song that was a hit on the R&B charts. That was a song called Lucy's Rap. Yes! Which, which featured a pair of rap breaks by Roxanne Shanti. Now, James did do a video for the song, one which featured scores of barely clothed women <laughs> a woman wearing not much more than a colonial george washington type coat and hat <laughs> girls showering together and a heavy insinuation that the girls were really enjoying one another's company in the shower okay like mtv here's a shocker wouldn't play it deeming it obscene <laughs> which which led james to accuse the network of double standards since they did play racy videos by the likes of madonna he said mm. now as we discussed in part two of the series, MTV would not play his Super Freak video back in 1981, claiming it was too vulgar. But at that point, the network rarely played black artists at all. Now, that had changed by the time this video was released in 1988, and it should be noticed that the BET network also refused to play the video. So we're going to listen to the song now, and not to taint the jury, but in my opinion, I think that you will see that the, that um, that that one star review might have been kind. So, Ooh. again, 
again, just personal opinion, but we'll, we'll listen and then we'll discuss afterwards. So here's Rick James with a song from 1988 called Lucy's Rap.
Okay, I'm going to say this right now. Mm -hmm. uh, watching the video, I've got questions. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. who, who was the director that was like, yes, yes, put all the shaving cream on your chest? That was my takeaway. Put, put, uh, yes, put all, put all the shaving cream on your chest, attractive young female. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, no, when I think of sex, yeah, I think of a woman, I, I think of a woman shaving her chest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's hot. There's nothing that revs my motor quite like a chick with chest hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, boy, that's uh, quite a thing there. So to me, I don't know what you guys thought of that song. To me, that sounds like a kind of starting to age R&B soul artist desperately trying to be relevant by embracing rap and failing miserably. That's what it sounded like to my ears. It sounds phoned in. Okay, you know? if, you, if you take it out of context, it's not terrible. If you take it out of context, it's not it's not the worst thing I've ever heard. That would probably be whatever that crap was that uh it's it's not cobwebs and strange. Oh. It's not um it's not cookie puss. Uh -oh. <laughs> That's what That's I was thinking classic. of. Cookie Puss. How dare you? Cookie Puss is it's terrible. Not, How it's not dare cookie you? Puss. It's not Cookie Puss, and it's not David Bowie pretending to be garden gnomes, and it's not Van Halen 3. But it's bad. <laughs> it's we, bad. We know what it isn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's... But it's not... What it, what it also what it also isn't is good. Uh, correct, yeah. I, I would say, again, it sounds kind of phoned in, like... Like you said, it sounds like somebody who's almost struggling to maintain their Vegas residency. And not one of the big hotels, the one that's a little bit off the strip. Like, not the, like the Golden Nugget. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, what's the other one? Anything in Prim? It basically, yes. These are the, that, that's the thing you see headlining in Prim, Nevada. Or, bu yeah, Buffalo Bills. <laughs> Buffalo Bills. Yeah. They haven't quite made it to Vegas. They're about 90 miles from Where's Vegas. Where's the Rick James concert? It's next to the shot-up car from Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, pretty much. Rick's second and final album with Reprise was 1989's Kickin', which was actually initially shelved. Then only saw limited release in the UK where it failed to chart at all. Oof. James had released 11 albums in 11 years, but that prolific nature was about to take a downturn, partly because he would not be, be available to record, as you will see shortly. Now, even though he wasn't having any hits himself, that didn't mean that Rick James's music wasn't still indirectly selling big numbers. In 1989, a rapper by the name of MC Hammer sampled Super Freak for the song You Can't Touch This. Now, I found, and, oh boy, did I buy into those hammer pants. <laughs> yep. Now, I found conflicting information about whether or not James actually consented to allow use of his work. He was quoted as saying that if MC Hammer had asked his permission, he would have said no. But then there was another line of thought that Hammer asked his record label for permission and they gave it. But, however, this is where our hero from part two of the series, James's band leader, Levi Ruffin Jr., re-enters the picture. Yes. On Tales from the Tour Bus, he indicated a request actually was made, though how much of the song was going to be used was perhaps lowballed. Quote, Hammer called, but none of us knew anything about this sampling shit they were doing. <laughs> and Hammer talked to Rick about using just a little small part of the song, and man, he took the whole effing line. James didn't even like You Can't Touch This. Quote, hell no, I wasn't impressed with that shit, James said. <laughs> Stone City Band member... Stone City band member Daniel Lamell said, quote, Rick was pissed. He said, how can this dude just take my song and blaspheme it and do this to it and do that to it? 
and the song sucks and blah, 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 until that first check hit. Hmm. When that first royalty check hit Rick's pocket, it was a completely different ballgame. Because obviously You Can't Touch This was one of the biggest hits of the late 1980s. It sold millions of copies. You couldn't it, avoid it. Uh, right, you couldn't avoid it. It was If you weren't alive then to hear it and to, and to see the phenomenon it became then you don't, you, I, I can't explain it to you. It was more than a hit song. It was people wore You Can't Touch This t-shirts, and it was a catchphrase universally, almost. And we don't really have a lot of those anymore, songs like that. I'm trying to think that, anything that, even comes close to the phenomenon. That, now, oh, no, oh, no, no. Achy Breaky Heart came pretty close a few years later. The people Macarena. walked around wearing the, wearing the t-shirts, and, but, but that You Can't Touch This was ubiquitous. Well, here it was um it was omnipresent. You couldn't escape the damn thing. I would it say was, I would say the Macarena was probably the closest thing we could have gotten to that. Macarena kind of comes close. Okay, Macarena comes close. Achy Breaky Heart probably came close a few years later. I would say James did file a lawsuit, but it was settled out of court with James given co-writing credit. And uh, you can't touch this. Not only made James, in his word, quote a shitload of money, <laughs> it, it also won him his first. And only Grammy Award. Wow. Yep. Huh. He was given co he was given co writing credit. So when that won uh, you know a couple of Grammys at that year's ceremony, those were the only ones Rick ever won in his entire career. Did he even get nominated? I mean, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he got many nominations or not. He had no he had no other Grammy wins though, other than for You Can't Touch This. Wow. Now we're about to veer into particularly disturbing territory. So. Let's have one more crazy, whacked-out story as it's kind of a palate cleanser before we do. In his book, former heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson oh, recounted beating Rick James at a large party in Los Angeles. Oh, man. The next time he saw him was an occasion when Tyson was sitting outside a hotel with Ricky Schroeder and Alfonso Ribeiro having a drink. <laughs> nice! Tyson figures the two actors were 16 and 17, respectively, at the time, but he was still sitting there drinking beer with them. <laughs> he said that Rick James pulled up in a convertible Rolls Royce. He got out wearing, quote, a loud shirt that was unbuttoned and an untied tie. He walked up and gave Tyson five, then looked at Ribeiro. Aren't you an actor, he asked, right before he sucker punched him. Give me that effing beer. He then took Ribeiro's beer and started drinking it. Tyson protested that Rivera was just a kid and that James shouldn't have punched him, but James looked at Mike Tyson and said, what's up, N-word? Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? Ooh. Oh, boy. Yeah, real thing okay. that happened. Unbuttoned shirt, untied tie, says, aren't you an actor, and punches Alfonso Rivera in the face, takes his beer and drinks it in front of him. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So, Ooh. in 1991... Rick James's life came completely unglued when his mother Betty passed away from stomach cancer. Mm. James said that threw him into a deep depression and that he dealt with it by upping his already frighteningly high level of drug consumption, which is quite a thing to say about a man who spent more than $1,000 a day on cocaine. Oh, so he's in the, he's in the Jennings Club. Wait, $1,000 a day? Yep. On cocaine. That is so much toot. And you gotta think that is so other much things I can't even like eating. What what we have any idea what like an ounce of cocaine would have cost in nineteen ninety one? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, that, but I ended up on a list. You know what? I'm already on a list. I'll Google it. Hang on. I'm just gonna 
Hey Siri, how yeah, just... much did an ounce of cocaine cost in 1989? Oh, <laughs> she actually gave an me an answer. The street price of powdered cocaine ranges from $16, $16 per gram in Los Angeles to $20 for poor quality powder in Yakima, Washington, which I've been to. I've actually been Palm to Yakima. Yes, Yakima. Hey, let me tell you something. You, you stay off that Yakima too, y'all. They cut it with seven dust. Hang on. This is this is okay. Hang on. This is from 19. This this is an article from 1989. Okay. Okay. So just just so you know. So by that account, Will's doing the math on the 16 a gram. So it's $16 per gram. He was allegedly going through 62 ounces of cocaine a day. 62 grams of cocaine a day. So let's convert grams. Oh my god. It's 2.18699 ounces. Okay, so he, he was doing almost, he was doing two to three ounces of... Every day. And an, ounce, and an ounce is a lot of booger sugar. How does he have a nose? Every day. <laughs> Every day. So he was in the Waylon Jennings, I'm spending a grand a day on it club. Of which I think only Waylon and Rick James are members. <laughs> I've never heard of anybody else. That's, that, is, that is obscene. Holy crap. That, that's an amount I can't even fathom because I, like... $1,000 I mean, I'll make a candle and it's eight ounces. So I'm thinking like he does a candle's worth of blow in like four days. Right. Good Lord. So James had, James had been to rehab a dozen or more times over the years, but it never stuck. Maybe he should now, have been Steven Tyler again. Well, interesting you say that. <laughs> in, in Mike Judge's fantastic show, Tales from the Tour Bus, the Stone City Band talk about the fact that they actually put Rick James in a car and drove him from Buffalo to Boston to take him to rehab on one occasion. But Daniel Lamell said that they, quote, didn't do their due diligence because Rick James ended up at that sort of retreat-ish rehab facility in a bungalow next to Steven Tyler and the two of them got caught with an ounce of cocaine at rehab. <laughs> in rehab. I thought they checked you for that stuff when you came in. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. I, Somehow I got... Rick James and Steven Tyler got caught in a bungalow <laughs> with an ounce of cocaine. In rehab. At rehab. You guys know, the point, of, you guys know the point of rehab, right? Right. You keep using this word. I do not think you know what it means. <laughs> Holy monkey. I mean, okay. Um, Rick James's friend, uh, and oh, here's where, where we get back to our six degrees of separation. Ready? Okay. Rick James's friend, Debbie Allen, actually invited him to a Broadway show that she was appearing in. But having partied all night, he fell asleep during the performance sitting on the front row. Oh, no. She, she accosted him backstage, pinned him to the floor. And told him that all he did was have sex and do drugs and that he was ruining his life. He promised to change his ways, but he got he got high and had sex later that evening. Now, <laughs> the, the, six, the six degrees of separation there is actually that Debbie Allen's mother lives about a mile from my office. And she's written you, hasn't she? Yes, and I've met Debbie, and Debbie is... And almost, she is one of the nicest. She's like a ball of energy and happy sunshine. <laughs> she is she Aww. is such a nice, wonderful person. And of course, because I'm a sports fan, getting to meet her husband was very cool. Because she's married to Norm Nixon, who played for the Showtime Lakers. Oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah. But he let Debbie Allen beat the crap out of him, basically. So basically, Debbie Allen kicked his ass. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, le- he left, got high, and, and had sex with somebody. And had sex later that evening. He reached out to Ray Charles at one point, who obviously dealt with um, some addiction issues, for advice about how to deal with drugs. But that totally did not help. As Charles... Charles, as he talked to Rick James, drank a big mug of coffee that featured a 50-50 mix of java and gin every 90 minutes. Wait, what? Ray Charles, as he talked to Rick James, every 90 minutes, drained a giant mug that was 50% coffee and 50% gin. Oh. <laughs> and he pronounced to James that he had written almost all of his hits while he was high. <laughs> I mean, I believe that. Not that, that, okay, first of all, gin and coffee sounds horrific. That sounds Wretched. god awful. That sounds that sounds terrible. That, that sounds, sounds like worst thing ever. <laughs> first of all, gin is gin by itself is bad enough. It's like drinking pine needles. Why in the God's name would you put that in your coffee? Yeah, it does not sound good. I think I want to say somebody made me a gin fizz drink one time that was pretty good, but for the most part, I don't really like gin and and gin and coffee sounds grotesque it sounds far too dry and bitter yes it's yeah yes it sounds like you're doubling up on those things which which are not that good to start with james got so twitchy for a hit on one occasion while waiting for his drug dealer to bring him a new shipment that he used rubbing alcohol to scrub residue from his crack pipe so he'd have something to smoke oh lord on one occasion, he poured the residue and alcohol onto a plate, but dropped the plate while he was walking to his bedroom, setting his bathrobe on fire. Oh my God. A friend who was in the house tackled him and smothered the flames with a bedspread, but James, still smoldering with smoke coming from his skin, got up and continued on as if nothing had happened. What? Yeah. He put foil over his windows to block out the light and would smoke crack by himself for hours. His drug intake isn't the only vice that had spiraled to untold heights. Now, before I read you a quote from his autobiography, let me say that as a famous comedy sketch to come would demonstrate, James would often contradict himself within the course of a single sentence. He did have a crazy life, but he perhaps didn't always present things as they really were. And he liked to build up his own mystique through outrageous claims. Still, he said what he said of his sex life in the wake of his mother's death. And what he said was this, quote, There was nothing to keep me from descending into the lowest levels of hell. That meant orgies. That meant sadomasochism. That even meant bestiality. Oh, I thought you said there were no animals. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Are you just glazing over that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Rick offered no elaboration, and thank God for small favors. <laughs> like, I do not need to hear about Rick James tooling a marmot. Okay. Oh my! All right, so now, I'm not, now, now, now he gave no elaboration, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that's what he did, but I'm just, I'm just, nope. I'm connecting dots here. No, nope, we're done. We are done. We're done. Move, move forward. <laughs> it's not all my it's breath. Not getting any better. Making all right. love to you. Oh crap! No, that's just not a good. Just, no, no, just let's. Let's uh, roll. Let's roll. do the next thing. Yeah, yeah, let's do the next thing. On to the next. In 1990, James, who was in his early 40s at the time, began dating 18-year-old model Tanya Hijazi. In 1991, James and Hijazi met a 24-year-old woman at a party um, who was unemployed and offered to put her up in their house. On J- July 16th, James allegedly accused the woman of stealing some of his drugs. 
She says that James pulled a gun and threatened to kill her if she tried to leave. She said that James and Hijazi tied her up to a chair and burned her with a hot knife, a cigarette lighter, and a hot crack pipe more than 30 times, including on her genitalia. That's the the account I've heard. They forced her to smoke crack. Then James made her have sex with Hijazi while he watched. Then they had a three-way. Wow. Wow. She was allowed to leave the house on July 18th and went to Cedar sinai Medical Center, where her injuries led hospital workers to notify police. James and Ajazi were arrested on an array of charges ranging from torture and false imprisonment to assault with a deadly weapon and kidnapping, ones that had them facing the potential of life in prison. Wow. Per a later interview he did with Tom Snyder on The Late Late Show, James said that once he and Hijazi finally got a bond, the next day he went into the streets of Hollywood and bought some crack. Mm. Per his retelling, two plainclothes officers approached his car with their guns drawn. Obviously, an arrest for possession would have led to an immediate revocation of his bond. So James said that he ate the crack. Oh, uh, my God. it, Swallowing it and the baggie that it was in, in whole. Just t- oh. took, the little ba- took the baggie of crack and just swallowed the whole thing. Wow. He evaded arrest, and about eight hours later, he pooped out that baggie and promptly smoked the crack uh. that had passed through his digestive system and his duker. Here's the thing, though, T. Um, Starbucks has a very special coffee, which... It's they feed the beans to like a Bengal tiger or something, and then they follow it around with like a little baggie. And then, you know, when it poops out the beans, uh, then they brew the coffee and it's super expensive. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my. So, he shit out a bag of crack and smoked it. Wow. So, how does that work? Do you, do you like crap in a colander so that it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how. I don't want to do it. Or like a women, do you just like paw it out? <sighs> I mean, you're already smoking crack that's in your like that's coming out of your butt. I mean, I'm thinking just reaching straight in and just snatching it is not like out of the this is not realm the, of possibility. This is not the craziest thing Rick James has done. <laughs> this is also not the conversation I thought we should be having on a Friday night. <laughs> wow. From I don't need to talk crack. about the logistics of poop crack. Poop crack. There's a butt crack. Oh god. Oh. Womp womp. <laughs> I'm Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at this, but I am. It's Lord. just so outrageous. It's, it's hard to believe it's real. Oh my God. And this is stuff that happened. Yes. He sat there on national television and told Tom Snyder he smoked his, his poop crack. I got to find that just to see Snyder's reaction. That's what I, I would feel like. Say. I need to isolate just that part. <laughs> just that little part of TJ's dialogue. Oh. Okay. So it would actually be almost two years before Rick James and Hijazi went on trial for their assault. But in the interim, there was another horrifying incident. A music executive said that James had arranged a meeting with her to discuss a business venture. Instead, the woman said James and Hijazi kidnapped her and assaulted her over the course of 20 hours. Jeez. In his book, James detailed that he did brutally beat that woman. Jeez. And that... In his book, accounts of these crimes that he's committed. Well, now he he the, to the first crime that yeah. we discussed, he pled innocent. He did in okay. his in his posthumously released autobiography. He admits that in the, in the second case that he that he beat the hell out of that woman. 
Jeez. Wow. He said that when she, when he was done beating her, that she looked like she'd been hit by a truck. Jeez. Why? And why? Knew, well, what made him so masochistic? Well, I think it was the fact that he was he was just smoking crack at that point. Yeah, he was smoking crack. It came out of his own ass. That's why. Right. You're talking about such a hardcore, and I'm not. I would never excuse a, a guy doing that ever, ever, ever for any reason. But. Watching a lot of documentaries and reading a lot of stories, people said that when he started freebasing and smoking crack, that he was not the same person that they know. Also, here's a through line. Uh, It won't happen next week, but it will happen probably in like three weeks where we also talk about someone who did crack cocaine. Yes, we will. There's a lot of crack this year. Really? Crack. Yeah. But yeah, in his book... He, he detailed that he did brutally beat that woman and said that when he was done with her, she looked like that she'd been hit by a truck. And then he, he picked her up and helped clean her up afterward. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah. James would ultimately be ordered to pay that woman $1 million in a civil settlement. Wow. James, during the, the um, trial for the first lengthy assault, did take the stand in his own defense. He sobbed when discussing the death of his mother, which he said sent him into a giant tailspin. Bizarrely, he asked the judge for the entire trial to be paused for a weekend so that he could wed Hichazi. His honor, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, let's just be honest, said no. <laughs> We're not going to stop the trial so you can get married, Rick. Sorry. Yeah. Now, Hichazi had actually gotten pregnant in the interim between when the assault happened and when their trial began. She ended up pleading guilty to one of the assault charges and was sentenced to four years in prison. She and James did welcome son Tasman James to the world in late 1993. James actually had two children from a much earlier relationship with a girlfriend named Seville that we actually talked about back in part one of our Rick James series. But Hajazi was soon sent to prison, and James, while he managed to beat some of the torture charges thanks to a hung jury, was found guilty on two assault charges and was sentenced to five years in prison at Folsom. Oh, wow. Yep, so James was sent to Folsom Prison. Wow. Now, he talked about his time in prison in the aforementioned Tom Snyder interview. He said a number of people there took care of him. But they also gave him a little bit of a tongue lashing, asking him, what are you doing here with us? Many of them had been in jail before the real advent of crack, so they didn't understand when he tried to tell them about it. What they did know was that he was rich, he was famous, and that he had blown it. He needed to do better for himself, but he also needed to set a better example for black youth, he said they told him. He said they told him when he got out, they had better not ever see him in jail again. Now, he said he really only got into one fight while he was in prison, that being with a, quote, Russian Aryan type. And Rick says that he beat the dude's ass. <laughs> he also wrote about 300 songs while he was in jail and rededicated his life to Christianity, he said. Now, James was actually released from prison after less than three years. And I read one story, but then I, it was, I, I couldn't find it when I wanted to go back and cite it. I think there was, it, it was ruled there was some sort of prosecutorial misconduct in relation to his trial, and that helped him get parole, I think. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, something uh, that reminds me of something similar happened to uh, Scott Peterson recently. Yeah, they overturned the death penalty because apparently the judge dismissed someone who uh, opposed the death penalty. Which, which, yes, which you can't do. So they overturned the, they didn't overturn the the conviction. They overturned the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So he will have life in prison now, I think. So it's kind of the same thing. Like if Mm -hmm. you don't, if the process isn't taken care of within the court system, like by the letter of the law, like literally 
the letter of the law. Things right. can be reversed in your favor. So sure. Now he did express disappointment that, in, in his words, many of his quote famous black friends never spoke out on his behalf or defended him. He said, "quote I'm very disappointed they're protecting their own rich asses so they can kiss my ass." Hmm. He specifically mentioned Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. By the way. James decided to get back to what he did best once he got out of prison, that being music. He said that for the first time, he would be performing and recording completely clean. He said he'd never made a record before without large quantities of cocaine, bowls full of quaaludes, and copious amounts of cognac and Jack Daniels Black in the studio. That wait is Jack Daniels Black the one that you you mix? I mean, you you can. Yeah, you can drink straight. Too. Well, you know, yeah, that's gonna ask because like they yeah. say, like what was it, uh, red? You should mix. What's it? Johnny Walker? Oh, you're, okay. about, you're thinking Johnny Walker? Yeah. All you're right, you're right. Yeah. This is what happens. I don't drink. I forget all the booze. Although Jack Black is really good, I'm a fan. Uh, but James decided to get back to what he did. That that being music, it, for the first time, he would be doing it completely clean. In this, um, in 1997. A self-proclaimed Sober James delivered the last album of his lifetime, that being Urban Rhapsody. He attempted to blend funk, soul, and rap on an album that featured contributions from everybody from Snoop Dogg to Bobby Womack. Wow. He tackled some some deeper issues uh, than in the past, including social issues, politics, his faith, but also sex Mm. and drugs, because it's Rick James. (laughs) <laughs> the album wasn't a hit, really, but it did receive some decent reviews, certainly better than uh, his his previous album or two had gotten. So we're going to listen to one song from that album now. So here's something from James's comeback effort. This is a song called West Coast Thing. Wow. L.A. City of the Angels. Palm trees. Sunshine. Honey's everywhere. Yo, girl. California 
Okay, so that was uh, Rick James with a song from Urban Rhapsody called West Coast Thing. Now, you gotta be honest with you, I, I listened to most of that album, not the whole thing. I think I listened to at least part of all the songs. It, they're not terrible. They have a very dated feel about them to me. What, what did you make of that song there, LD? You, yeah, it sounded like you, you weren't really into it. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to do this the best way I can do it, okay? There's a movie, and well it was a Broadway show first, but uh, I I I haven't been able to see the Broadway show because you know, COVID, uh called Rock of Ages. And it's a jukebox musical, but part of the through line in the film is that the uh the main character Wolfgang von Colt, which is not his real name, that's his stage name, uh, wants to be a rocker, but then he sells out to be a boy band and it kind of sounds like that. It okay. sounds like someone who used to have musical integrity that sort of sold out to get a sound that they thought was popular as opposed to doing what they believed was right. Yeah. I haven't listened to the whole album or, or not. Well, uh, to I think at least part of every song and read about it. You know, it sounded like Rick was trying to, to be a little more issue oriented. He tackled some, some political stuff and social issues and he talked about you know, saying about God and, and drugs and sex still too, but there was some ambient noise kind of stuff on some of the songs, street noise almost. It almost felt like Rick was kind of ripping Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album a little bit maybe, but just not doing it great in my opinion. Some of the songs are, are okay, but it just, it, it, they were all kind of like what you just heard. There was nothing about them that popped. They were just, yeah, they're, just very, kinda, they're just kind of there. It was very generic. And I hate, I hate speaking ill of the art of the dead, but you know, we are a warts and all podcast. And I will, I, this is my opinion is that it just isn't great because it feels like he, he lost touch with himself a little bit. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not saying, please go back to drugs so you can make good music, not by yeah. any stretch of the imagination, but Stop. I'm saying like, take a moment for yourself and realize like, what got you there and, and keep doing you know, keep keep the formula that you have. I'm not saying don't change with the times, but what I am saying is know what the times are, maybe. Tool a beefalo and smoke some poop crack. That's not what we're saying, kids. <laughs> I think that's what we're, I think we just encouraged that, didn't we? Uh, listen to your Aunt Lindley. Don't do drugs. No, no Dame said he was nervous about hitting the stage for the first time in many years for a couple of reasons. For one, at that time, he said that he had gained quite a bit of weight, which made him feel self-conscious. He said, thanks to doctors, rehab, friends, and his renewed faith, he wasn't doing drugs, but he still wanted cocaine. Mm -hmm. Before his first show at uh, the House of Blues, somewhere in California, I don't remember exactly where, uh, once he got out of jail, friends Paul Mooney and Chris Tucker visited him in his dressing room. Chris Tucker? Wow. Yeah, they helped keep him loose, and he delivered a show that he was happy with. There were a lot of health problems on the way, however. For one thing, he had to have hip replacement surgery. Now, he chalked up the damage to the joint to dancing, gyrating, and jumping around the stage while inebriated on drugs and alcohol. He said the doctor claimed the condition was common in musicians, actually called it, quote, rock and roll hip, and noted that Eddie Van Halen had just had the same procedure. Before. I was literally going to say, yeah. like, didn't Eddie Van Halen have, like, the same kind of surgery? Yes, yes, 100%, the exact same procedure. He had he had a hip replacement surgery. Oh, wow. Copy that. Yeah. So um, he and Murphy apparently made nice. You know, he, he said that 
his black friends didn't support him when he went to jail, including and he named called Eddie Murphy by name. They obviously made nice because Eddie Murphy made him an offer to appear in the film Life in 1999, which he did. Oh yeah, yeah. However, later that year in 1999, James suffered a stroke on stage. Oh, oh wow! Geez. One that would place him uh, or put him in a place where he had to learn to walk again. He was mostly off the radar until 2004, but his career was about to step right back into the spotlight and out of the darkness. By this time, comedian Dave Chappelle had launched an enormously popular self-titled show on Comedy Central. One of the regular contributors on Chappelle's show was Charlie Murphy. Charlie Murphy. He was actually in a lot of skits, but the ones he is probably best known for are his true Hollywood stories. <laughs> focusing on the interaction he and his brother had with both Rick James and Rick James's old nemesis, Prince. <laughs> yep. Now, at the outset of this episode, we detailed some of Charlie's interactions with James, and those were both depicted in the sketches on The Chappelle Show. So was an occasion when James came over to Eddie Murphy's home. Now, the comedian had a very nice and very well-kept home, which included... A new suede couch. Oh, no. <laughs> James showed up and, despite being told not to do so, proceeded, proceeded to lay down on the couch and grind his dirty boots into it. Oh, that's just rude. As it was reenacted in the sketch, James yelled, F your couch, N-word. Buy another one, you rich mother effer. F your couch. F your couch, N-word. <laughs> wow. When he recounted it on the show, James's exact quote was, quote, I never just did things to do them. What am I going to do? Just jump up and grind my feet in somebody's couch? Come on. I've got a little <laughs> more sense than that. Yeah, I remember grinding my feet in Eddie's couch. <laughs> the course of a sentence, he contradicted himself. What? In the same sentence, he's already contradicted himself. Asked why he did it, James said, quote, because Eddie could buy another one. <laughs> now there were varying accounts about whether murphy actually laid an ass whipping on james uh, as a result of doing that to his brother's couch james himself claims quote in his effing dreams he kicked my ass <laughs> but that skit also featured james explaining memory lapses and incidents away with the quote cocaine is a hell of a drug <laughs> and portrayed him as constantly announcing i'm rick james bitch i'm rick james bitch I'm Rick James, bitch. Yep. I hear that when I when I fall asleep at night. <laughs> yeah. Well, those those sketches enjoyed mammoth popularity and nearly every line of dialogue spoken by Chappelle portraying Rick James became popular catchphrases. There yep. was talk at one point of Chappelle actually playing Rick James in a movie. Oh jeez. In fact, the catchphrases became too prevalent for the liking of Chappelle himself. He said when he took his children to Disney World, almost every person he encountered in the park screamed, I'm Rick James, bitch, at him. He said, quote, could you not call me a bitch in front of my kids? He <laughs> joked that even Mickey Mouse did it. Huh, I'm Rick James, bitch. I would pay so much money to hear and he said, And he said, that was, which is just completely unprofessional. How dare he? Once, once again, guys, this is not the impression podcast. Right. At one stand-up performance, with many in the crowd screaming, 
I'm Rick James, bitch. Chappelle told them that his TV show was, quote, ruining his life. Quote, the network officials say you're not smart enough to get what I'm doing, and every day I fight for you. I tell them how smart you are. Turns out I was wrong. You people are stupid, Chappelle said before walking off the stage early. So there are actually people who say that the Rick James True Hollywood stories are the sketches that ended the Chappelle show. Now, LD, you actually worked on the Chappelle show. Yep. Did you do? And, and you, I'm, I'm sure you know quite a bit about what happened after the fact. Um, do you feel like that's a thing? That that's one of one of the things that contributed to Dave feeling like, man, screw this. Uh, I don't know. I, I will not speculate on what happened afterwards. I will say this. I, people would walk up to me on the street and know who I was right. in, in New York City in 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Out here, I, would, I worked in a video store and I was stocking shelves and someone actually walks up to me and, and said, oh, are you Jenny, the girl who's dating the N-word from you know, school? And I said- right. I was like, uh, could you not use that kind of words around me, please? And right. yeah, yeah, you know, there when the IMDb pages were, still had like a message board on them, right. uh, there were pages devoted to particular skits. So my skit had its own page and, you know, the, the, the Rick James stuff would have his own page. But seriously, people still, still recognize The Chappelle Show as like a hallmark moment. In yeah. t- it was a watershed moment in TV. It was one of those shared experiences that millions of people had, which is really rare now for everything that we can watch. Right. Like, if, if you think about it, like Tiger King on crack. Mm-hmm. Well, Tiger King on more crack. Is it? Is it um, poop crack? Is not poop crack. <laughs> but... But the Chappelle Show was a watershed moment in TV. It was huge. I, it, it, you can't. It's hard to quantify that now. It really is. It, it really is. Like there's nothing we really have that's that kind of shared comedic experience that we all have. Right. You know, you'll meet a couple. You'll meet people that like, oh yeah, they love Shit's Creek, or oh they love the Good Place, or oh they love this, or the. But you won't find like millions and millions of people who watch kind of the same thing now game of thrones was the closest. Yeah, yeah, well, i'm talking about comedy oh comedy strictly right. strictly yeah. comedy yeah that's right it. so you don't really have that that in our our zeitgeist and so really you look at Chappelle's show and it was something that was so new and so different and so like earth shattering that there's a lot of pressure that goes into that you're creating a show that garners millions of views a week millions upon millions in a time where social media really wasn't a thing. Do you, do you, do you want to know something? I, I, because this was in a story I read. When the Dave Chappelle bit aired about Rick James, Facebook was something like three or four weeks old. Huh. Uh, probably still in colleges only. Yeah, it might have been. But that, that was such a, uh, you're right. It, that was such a hallmark watershed kind of a moment. But, you know, so here's Dave trying to, go out and do stand-up which is really what he loves doing by his own admission and he, he can't even do his his act because people in the jet and the crowd were screaming i'm rick james bitch like over yeah. and over and over and it he just, didn't want he never envisioned that turning into a punchline that's not or or, or into like a cheap punchline season, season two of that is a one of the funniest seasons of a show there's ever been period yeah. that's that that because yep. that's that's the true hollywood stories that's your bit. 
that's a bunch of the of the all-time classics and then it was just gone i applaud him for walking away because yeah. if if i was stifled like that i would have walked away too like i have i have nothing but good things to say about dave Chappelle. he was compassionate he is incredibly funny He's one of the best people I ever worked with. And I only got to work with him for, what, two days? And for me to carry that with me for almost 20 years now, that says a lot. Sure, definitely. But, you know, that that was a, a, a one of the things that turned him off. And there are, you can go read stories where people say that that was the sketch that ended the Chappelle show or whatever. Still, still there was a wave of publicity for Rick James after that bit aired in February of 2004. He swore that he was still clean at this point, but Stone City band member Daniel LaMille said in Tales from the Tour Bus that James was freebasing again. James's last performance was on June 29, 2004, singing Fire and Desire with Tina Marie on the BET Award Show. There might have been a hint that things weren't great then, as he sure seemed like peak coked up Rick James as he recounted for the BET audience from the stage uh, an incident he had backstage with a woman who didn't apparently know who he was. Quote, this is what he said on the BET award show broadcast. Quote, never mind who you thought I was. I'm Rick James, bitch, he said. <laughs> Ruffin and LaMelle said that they and James were supposed to begin prepping for a tour in September of 2004. But when they talked to him, they said that he sounded sick. Ruffin actually said that he kind of joked that, oh, man, I, I hope Rick will be around for that tour. Ha, ha, ha. But then, quote, he was gone, man. He was just effing gone. Mm. On August 6, 2004, James's caretaker found him dead in his apartment near Los Angeles. His publicist announced that he died of natural causes. The cause of his death was listed. <laughs> there, there were a lot of things listed, but the primary ones were that uh, he had pulmonary and cardiac failure. However, Rick James was found to have more than nine different drugs in his system at the time of his death, including methamphetamines, hydrocodone, and cocaine. Wow. A public funeral drew about 6,000 fans. Among the friends at his service uh, was Jamie Foxx, by the way. Aww. There was a posthumous and fairly recent allegation from a woman that James raped her in the late 1970s. A documentary miniseries based on the life of James and one of his brothers was recently greenlighted, and there was a posthumous album release, which we'll hear something from in just a second. In 2013, James's song, Give It To Me, was featured on the soundtrack of the movie The Lords of Salem, along with that of a lot of other artists like Rush, Velvet Underground, John Five, and Manfred Mann's Earthbound. There it is, our federally mandated Manfred Mann Earthbound's reference of the podcast. Has been satisfied. You thought, you thought I forgot, didn't you? I, I did not. I forgot that we even did this. You forgot that, like, we did a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is a podcast? <laughs> what are we doing? Oh, crap. Rick James was buried fittingly in his hometown of Buffalo, New York. Mm. His tombstone, have y'all ever, have you ever seen his tombstone? No. No. It is jet black. It features a picture of him holding a guitar and bears the inscription, quote, I've had it all. I've done it all. I've seen it all. It's all about love. God is love. And then has James Ambrose Johnson Jr., 1948 to 2004. <laughs> they could have saved some money on the inscription, I think, though, and just put, I'm Rick James, bitch! <laughs> and I'm done. 
Okay, now we have concluded our three-part episode on Rick James. Uh, just, just kind of looking back, what what stands out to you guys about the life of of this guy? There are two things that that spring to mind, and one is the obvious: Jim Morrison and him getting thrown out of Disneyland because they're high. Being, because they were because they were both high on acid, right? But but the one that sticks out in my mind, and I have a pretty good idea just visualizing how it happened, is when he took the stage in where was it Cleveland, and they threatened to arrest him, and he told Arkansas. him Arkansas, Alabama, Alabama. Thank you to F off and then he gets on stage with a joint and he says you don't want me them to arrest me do you that that sticks out to me that that was a big one that was in Arkansas um Arkansas when he when he yeah when he just when he defied authorities and lit up a big joint when they had yep. they had snipers with M16s on the roof and stuff which is just the bizarre when it's like I mean it's guys it's weed <laughs> Like, like, I, mean, on, yeah. I mean, I know it was illegal, but you don't have to shoot him with an M16 for crying yeah. out loud. That's a trifle excessive. I will say for me, it's not even like a moment, but it's like, would his life have turned out the same if he was never a, a star? Hmm. Would his life had been as slap nuts crazy if he had not been a celebrity? Because think about how he, he started his life. He had that, you know, thing at nine years old and then signed up for the the army and then ran away from the army he lies like he lies he lies about his age to get into the military gets into the military then goes awol this is all before he even becomes a celebrity so what would his life have been like if he had never become that musical sensation Hmm. would it have been as crazy and we just wouldn't have heard about it because he was like a nobody I would say that um, if it was crazy, it would be crazy in a different way because it takes a lot of money to be the kind of crazy that Rick was. <laughs> yes. Okay. Fair. Where you're spending a grand a day on cocaine, like I mean, you have to you have to have a lot of money to buy a grand of cocaine a day. At least thirty thousand dollars, except for in February, which would be twenty nine. Yeah. Or twenty eight. Twenty nine. Or twenty eight, depending on whether or not it's leap year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I bet he hated leap years. Yeah. Oh, I needed that thousand dollars. Okay, so, uh, yeah, there's been a lot to it. Morrison and he getting kicked out of Disneyland for being too high is probably one of my favorites. He and Steven Tyler getting caught with cocaine in rehab. That's a good one. That is a good is one. A good, was a really good one. And and then poop crack. Yeah, he smoked something that he pumped out of his own cinnamon ring. That is just... I'm sorry, what did you just call that? Cinnamon ring? The brown dough ball? Yeah, uh, I've just never heard it called that. And now the I'm brown, the brown, the brown blind eye. I'm horrified. <laughs> I am, I am disgusted. Jenner, come the, squa- the squashed spider. <laughs> the bleached balloon knot. <laughs> you got? Did you guys like talk beforehand? <laughs> now that we've reached the end, I did come up with a proper discussion point for us to go out with. I want from everybody your top five. All-time Rick James songs. Now, here's the caveat. It can be Rick James. It can be one of his early bands like White Cane or The Minor Birds. It can be a song he wrote for somebody else. Standing on Top by The Temptations was written by Rick James, just as an example. A duet that he did with somebody like Tina Marie. Something by the Mary Jane Girls, because he wrote and produced all their songs. Anything by the the band that everyone has forgotten exists process and the do rags because he, <laughs> he produced them eddie murphy's party all the time or anything that samples a rick james song mm. so top five now will i know you said you you did 
a, a lot of research. We kind of went back and listened to some older stuff for this one. What, what, what have you got? Well, I will say that in general, th this what I'm about to say may contradict my picks, but I will say I gravitated towards his early catalog in the late 70s. Uh, okay. And I like that sort of funk, again, almost like George Clinton kind of style. So there were a lot of songs on those albums that I enjoyed, but that said, none of them stood out really enough to make my list. So, okay. Uh, and this is in no particular order. I have, confession here, I have always liked In My House by the Mary Jane Girls. Okay. I thought that was a great song. I had no idea until this podcast that Rick James had produced the song. So right. I'm going to put and, that... And wrote and, and wrote and arranged. Too. And wrote and arranged, yeah. Yep. I, I will say that another song that I was introduced to was It's My Time with uh, the Minor Birds. Okay, yeah. That that's out to me. And and it that if if I had played you that, just sight I mean sight unseen, not as part of the Rick James podcast, and said, hey hey, we'll check this out. Would you ever in a million years have guessed a that Rick James was in that band, and b that Neil Young was in it, based on uh, what you purely on what you heard? If labor this way, I would probably guess neither. But if you told me either Neil Young or Rick James, I would have picked Neil Young. But again, it would be a stab in the dark. Um, right. It sounds more like the Stones, honestly. Right. And so, so that one stood out to me. Uh, I, uh, I feel bad about it, but I, if I don't put Super Freak on here, I don't think it's a list. Right. Oh, sure. I, I got to. I mean, and then the the resurgence of NC Hammer. Uh, I will say that I'm a sucker for your love. Is that's a great song. That's a lot of fun. Love it. That's the one with Tina Marie and with Tina Marie, and you get to, and Tina Marie. God, what a singer, man! Yeah, she's great. Oh God, and, and Levi Ruffin. Voice. I mean, it's Levi Ruffin, the the great Levi Ruffin, our hero. I, I, I've got to cap it all. I I think the Rick James song that embodies Rick James and everything about him. I, I got to give it to give it to me, baby. That's just yep. That is the Rick James song, in my opinion. Okay, all so right. That is that is my list. Okay, LD, what you got? I only picked two. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the assignment, but okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been working all the jobs. Uh, you you texted me last night at ten o'clock my time, and we're like, "Here's the assignment for tomorrow," <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh crap!" So, uh, I picked Love Gravy, which is from Chef Aid. Okay. Yep. That's uh, yes. He did. He did participate in Chef Aid with, along with Isaac Hayes. Correct. All right. Yep. And then uh, Super Freak. Okay. Uh, I will say I did. I do I like in my house, and I do like the stuff that he did with uh, the White Cane. I right. I, I really like the stuff that we played in the earlier the, the okay. episodes. That stuff's really cool to me because like that's pure funk. Mm, sure. And all, like with almost like a foot in rock. So I really dug that fusion of music, but specifically, I did not have time to do the assignment. Teacher, I'm sorry. I will. I will take a C minus on these. Then you fail. I'm sorry. Two out of five is a forty. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the Mary Jane girls had another one. I think it was all night or all night long. All night long, they did. Have That's one another day. good one. Yeah. So, so my five, I, I wanted to reach out a little bit, and this is such, I love this song. It features a prominent sample of the one you just mentioned, uh, Will the Thrill, that being the Mary Jane Girls All Night Long, which hey. was written, produced, and uh, written, produced, and arranged by Rick James. 
the, a prominent sample of that one is featured in the LL Cool J song Around the Way Girl, which I've always just really liked. Huh. So I'm going to go with uh, LL's uh, Around the Way Girl for number five. I'm going to have to listen to it again. Uh, number four, I'm actually going to agree with something LD said at the end there. I am going to go with Find It by White Cane. It was very Sly Stone-ish, very Chicago-ish. Uh, like it sounded, you said when we played it, LD, it was like, you said it was like, it sounded like this big collaborative group of people just like beating on shit. Yeah, <laughs> and I love that. But it was really, it was really cool though. It was a really cool song that I actually really, really liked. And I liked the Minor Bird song that, that we heard as well, Will, which you said you enjoyed. It's my time, yeah. I like that one a lot. I am going to say at number three, probably Mary Jane Girls in my house. Uh, it's an undeniable, an undeniably great song. Now, and an earworm at that. Right, it is. And now the scent, the scenty part of it absolutely time stamps it as early <laughs> mid eighties. Like it's that that absolute prototypical cheese ball synthesizer that they played in like every R and B song in nineteen eighty four. You've got one but, foot in separate ways, kid. <laughs> but but that but that but you're it it's just it's an absolute earwig. It's undeni an undeniably great song. It's a well written song. It's hooky as hell. Yep. It's hard. I, I don't know how you can't like it it's if you hear it. Uh, number two, like just like you, Super Freak. Um, we're doing one of Rick James. It doesn't feel like a list if that song isn't on it. There's a lot to like about the song. There's a, a combination of new wave because because there's some synth, some synthy parts in it, but it's still got a foot in funk. And I actually kind of dig later in the song when. Rick kind of turns into a maestro and breaks the third wall a little bit and, you know, screams, you know, temptation, sing! Oh, 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 And then says, and it took me a really long time to figure out what he's saying. The last thing he says is, blow Danny. I, I thought he Danny? said, blow daddy. He's talking to saxophone player Daniel LaMille, Danny. Oh, wow. So I always it took, and I, I did too. I don't think I figured it out until I started doing the research for this the series and realized that his saxophone player's name was Daniel. So and I was like, like oh, eight years, oh, we've man. just been like, been right. so we've wrong. Been completely wrong. But I love that part of the song. And then, you know what? I, I, I didn't realize we were going to have this one in common. Will, number one for me is give it to me. Yeah. The baseline, the baseline for that song is sick. It is oh, fantastic. I love it. Boom, ba doom, doom, doom. And then those horns kick in. It's everything that's great about Rick James music. There There's it is. Yep. yep. Full on funk. That the uh, an absolutely fantastic bassline. Great. That's a well sung song. Catchy as hell. It's great. I love that song. It's my favorite Rick James song of all time. So that's um. I guess technically between the three of us, our twelve favorite Rick James songs because someone <laughs> failed in their assignment. But the I other two. Do you understand the pressure that I'm under? <laughs> I guess that LD can give our socials and then we will go away. Yeah. <laughs> A merciful end. I... Merciful, merciful, well, the merciful end of this. All right. <laughs> well, if you think that we're doing a good job, and why the hell would you? Why wouldn't you after this series of masterpieces? <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, throw a coin to the Witcher that's talking about butt crack. <laughs> uh, you can find that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You could find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Hang with us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook page is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. I'm still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And 
Please check okay. out all the other awesome <laughs> Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And from all of us here to all of you out there, I'm so sorry. You guys can turn the podcast off now if you, oh, you absolutely need to. We understand. Thank you for making it all the way to the end. Yes. I don't know how you did it. I barely did. You are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys so much for checking this series out. Check us out next week where we start our new series on. That is going to be Whitney Elizabeth Houston. A daughter of New Jersey. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we will be starting that. Will the Thrill will be taking the helm on those stories, and we really appreciate you guys hanging with us, uh, putting up with my brother's crap and my crap. And and the crap that crap. Rick James smoked. <laughs> there it is. All right, uh, let's close this out before we lose any more listeners. <laughs> okay, so in, in 2007, the album Deeper Still was posthumously released. So let's hear the title track. We're going to sign off from Rock and Roll Heaven and end our series on Rick James with a song called Deeper Still.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 